Um, we're wrapping up the series on numbers, messages from Revelation. And uh, this has been, for me, this has been a really fun series because as a discipleship pastor, a large part of my job is talking to people one-on-one, whether through email, phone calls, sitting down for coffee, lunch, and going over things that you may not have time to talk about during the sermon. You know, Talbot doesn't want you to raise your hand and ask him a question while he's speaking, and most preachers don't. And, um, and so I have the privilege of being able to just talk over some of the things that are said each week in Sunday school classes and things like that. And this series especially has been great because um, when you teach on Revelation, you're going to challenge people's beliefs. Uh, regardless of what you teach or, or how you teach it, Revelation touches a nerve. And so it's been great that, um, that we as a church, I think, teach this and don't hold back from it. Uh, and, and hopefully we've been able to communicate biblical truth and areas where Christians are free to disagree, um, areas where there's, uh, you know, some weighty people on both sides, and then some areas that really aren't that weighty, um, and then encourage you as a body to continue growing, that growing milestone that we talk about of walking together, growing in your faith, growing deeper in your scripture, in your knowledge of scripture. And, um, and so I'm, I'm sad that this series is ending, but I'm glad that I've been given the privilege to wrap it up by looking at this last number, uh, the 144,000. We're going to jump into it uh, as soon as I pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you have given us. Thank you for your word. Lord, it's, it's wonderful, it's comforting, it's challenging, and we can't figure it out on our own. Uh, we need the help of your spirit, and we need one another in the body of Christ. So I pray that you would uh, give both of those things today that you would fill our hearts, uh, speak through me, and bring the word that you'd have us hear. And ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so 144,000. If you ever talked in depth with, um, uh, if you have friends that are Jehovah's Witness or or other sort of fringe Christian groups, um, there's a lot of discussion about the 144,000. And is that all that's gonna make it into heaven? Uh, Are they a class of super believers that you know, make it to heaven and the rest are kind of in the cheap seats. Um, are they just Jewish people who come to faith after the church has been raptured away, as some people are taught? Um, let's look at the text first, where the 444,000 are mentioned. They're mentioned twice in Revelation, and the first time is in Revelation chapter 7. And just to give some background while you're turning there, Revelation chapter 7 is consists of these, these series of seven events that have happened. Uh, now, we, we won't be able to get into all the details of, of the passage and, and Revelation in a you know, half-hour sermon. There's no way. Uh, so I encourage you, take our Bible for the Rest of Us class. If you have a chance, take Invitation New Testament. Uh, take our Revelation class. Go through our passage classes, and, and that's where you really can get the meat of this. Uh, but I just want to hit on one specific thing, and that is today the identity of these 144,000. Revelation chapter 7, um, it, the six seals have just been opened, all right? And, and if you've never read Revelation or if you're familiar with it, regardless, um, in Revelation, God has this scroll. And, and in the ancient world, a scroll held by a king was that king's royal decree, that king's edict that he wanted put into effect. He would write it, he would seal it, he would give it to his general, his governor, his whoever, and then they would put it into effect. They'd open the seal and it would get done. In Revelation, the scroll is God's plan for redemption. 
And we're going to see how that comes into play later. But the scene that we're at is where six of the seven seals of that scroll have been opened. And each time they've been opened, something's happened. And, and it's, it, the, the, seal, uh, the series of seals goes right up to where it looks like the very, very, very end of everything is about to drop. And then as soon as you get to that sixth one, then it tells a story and then jumps back and tells the whole thing from a different angle, an angle of seven trumpets. And then as soon as you get to the seventh trumpet, when you're about to, you know, it's about to all happen and everything be resolved, it jumps back again and then it tells it from the perspective of seven bowls. So Revelation does a lot of, like Talbot said, it's like a dream. I, I don't know of anybody that dreams linearly. Just your dreams make perfect sense. Mine jump everywhere and jump around. And, and that's true because Revelation was a book it was written in a style of literature called apocalyptic. And we'll talk more about that in a minute, but that's part of apocalyptic literature is, is the, the jumping around and the blending of images. So let's look at chapter 7 where we first see these, this number. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east having the seal of the living God he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. The 144,000, they're introduced right here. Uh, John has a vision. He, uh, he, things are about to go down. And at some point during this section of the vision, he hears something that says, wait, wait, don't drop the hammer until I seal the servants of our God. And then he hears that 144,000 people are sealed, whatever that means, and then it goes and lists them. So, what does this mean? Well, when interpreting Revelation, any apocalyptic work, Daniel, Zechariah, but particularly Revelation, it is crucial to understand the Old Testament background. You cannot understand Revelation or even attempt to understand it without understanding the Old Testament background. And that's true for the majority of the New Testament, by the way. But Revelation specifically. There are two very clear images in this section that John sees that readers of the Hebrew Bible would have immediately picked up on. The first one is from Ezekiel chapter 9. You don't have to turn there, but it's in your, uh, for further study in your handout. Ezekiel 9 is a vision that Ezekiel has of Jerusalem and the temple, and a man is told, a man of God is told to seal with, on the forehead the faithful servants of God. He's told to go throughout and seal God's faithful servants, those among Israel who have not compromised their faith and who have not embraced the surrounding paganism and who are his spiritual, righteous, holy people among Israel, implying that all of Israel isn't at that time. That's the vision that Ezekiel has, the sealing of the faithful remnant. The second image, did you notice how many numbers were in this section? Um, why didn't John just say 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, you do the math, count it up, 
Why did he go through and list each tribe and their number? Each tribe and their number. Each tribe and their number. Well, where else do we see this type of writing in the Bible? We see it in the Old Testament when you have a Hebrew census. The book of Numbers, chapter 1, chapter 26. The book of Numbers is named Numbers because it's got these two long lists of numbers in it. And the numbers in the Old Testament are always the numbers of Israel's army. Whenever there's a census in the Old Testament, it's to determine the number of fighting men from each tribe. And John is drawing from, or God's giving him visions of, these two symbols sort of together, intermingled. The sealing of the faithful remnant among God's people and a a tribal military census. Okay, so just on a surface level, those are the two images we're working with from the Old Testament. We have to go from there then, and the second part of, of interpreting Revelation in any book is say, okay, that's what the symbols are, that, that's, that's the visual vocabulary that we're working with. Um, but now what does it mean for us? Or what would the original readers have got? And then what does it mean for us? Well, here's where multitude of attempts, and some good, some actually most not good, take place. There's a popular teaching among Christians of all denomination stripes within that if you, take, if you don't take the Bible literally, then that means you don't take it seriously. Now, that, that is a, that is, that's just wrong. I mean, that's just not true. Um, no one, and hear me, no one, no matter how staunch, diehard, fundamentalist, fire and brimstone, I read the Bible literally, no one takes the whole Bible literally. Because the same people that insist on literalism, you got to read it literally, take it for what it means literally, don't believe that Jesus has four legs and wool, but he's called the Lamb of God, right? Metaphor, simile, allusions, imagery, symbolism, it's everywhere in the Bible. In fact, in popular teaching on end times, um, and I've tried to, I try to read as much from all the different views as possible so that I can be fair and, and you don't ever want to shortchange somebody's view or belittle them. But in a lot of teachings on end times, you'll, you'll hear the thing of you should, the literal meaning of the text is the plain meaning and that's what you go by. Well, the, the very same people, usually, mostly, especially in writing, that take that view will do the exact opposite when it's convenient, theologically. In other words, remember the first week, the seven churches, and how we looked at those were letters to seven churches, seven actual historical churches. They were also letters to all the churches secondarily, but primarily they were literal churches. The same people that championed literalism often say these churches represent the whole church age, completely symbolizing what in the text is at least on surface level literal. So my point is that everyone is selectively literal in reading Scripture. Everyone. And that's okay because Scripture is written in language and language is not always literal. If I'd say, oh, I'm dying of hunger. I'm not literally dying of hunger. I'm just really hungry. And you all know that. You, you recognize it immediately. So that's, that's the, the one thing when approaching Revelation and other Scripture of the same genre as apocalyptic is, is literal is not always what the author intended. In fact, if you interpret, if we interpret a non-literal passage in a literal way, we will literally miss the truth of that passage. Because it was not meant to be interpreted literally. We have to read it on its terms, not on ours. 
Doing that, however, is kind of tricky because we don't always speak the same language or have the same vocabulary or know the symbols. That's okay. What we do know, we're able to get at pretty easily. And that is, Revelation's written in apocalyptic. There are multiple apocalyptic writings, some in the Bible, Daniel, Zechariah, others that aren't in the Bible, but that were around before Jesus and after that were just part of that culture. Apocalyptic writing is a genre. Apocalyptic doesn't mean end of the world. It doesn't mean disaster. It means literally, apocalypsis means unveiling, revealing, pulling back the curtain, seeing things how they really are. That's what Apocalyptic writing, the genre, is a lot like, how many people saw the Matrix movies? If anybody in here had some sweet kung fu, you go see them. Uh, but <laughs> apocalyptic writing is just like in the Matrix when Morpheus gives Neo the red pill. If you've seen the movie, the red pill, he says, if you take this, you're going to see reality for what it is. And it's not going to be pretty. And Neo takes the red pill. His eyes are opened. He sees that the world is exactly the opposite of what he thinks it is. He's not free. He's enslaved, et cetera, et cetera. That's exactly what apocalyptic literature is meant to do for the reader. And so knowing that, we can then start to step back and say, okay, what are you saying through this, God? We don't want to be just completely, oh, everything's a symbol. It can mean what you want it to mean. Because that's not helpful. And that's how cults start. Oh, if it can mean what you want it to mean, then yes, I am the Messiah. Come worship me. We don't want to go there. But at the same time, we don't want to hold to this, I'm going to take it literally because God speaks in plain language and that's how it is. No, that's not true either. We want to interpret it in the middle where we say, this is painting a picture of something that God wanted to paint to communicate a message that God wanted to communicate. So the question is, what's it painting the picture of? Well, we have some clues. And one of them starts in Revelation 5. Flip back one page to Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 5, John has been given a vision of the throne room of God. And it's this, just like the Old Testament visions of God's throne, Ezekiel, Isaiah, um, it's an overwhelming visual to say the least. There's living creatures with eyes on them and wings, and there's a sea of glass, and there's, you know, God's feet are like crystal and, and these precious stones, all this. But those are all symbols, and they're all saying something, and they all have meaning. But we're going to get into them right now. But John sees the throne of God, and look what he says in chapter 5. This is John in heaven seeing the presence of God. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. John starts weeping here because John knows what that scroll represents. That represents God's edict, God's will, his decree his plan for putting things to right. And no one's worthy to open it. And John weeps. But all's not lost. Next line. Then one of the elders, which are the heavenly tour guides, basically for John in this section, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See or look. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So John's bawling his eyes out because nothing's ever going to happen. He's gonna, he, remember, he's writing this in exile on a dusty rock in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. 
because of his Christian faith. He's writing it to seven churches who are being persecuted because of their Christian faith. And then he sees God's plan to set everything right. It's not going to be put into effect. Then he starts weeping. And then the elder says, don't cry. There is somebody who can put that into effect. In fact, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the root of David. And he has conquered. Those are powerful, powerful words. Lions. They're scary. Ah, big teeth. They, in the ancient world, they roamed the Middle East and they tear people apart. They were fearsome animals. And they also carried this symbol of, of regal and royalty, power, strength. The Lion of Judah was a title that the Hebrews used for the coming Messiah. The Root of David. Roots are strong. That's your foundation. If you're rooted, that means you're not going to be moved. Powerful imagery. And the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, he's done what? He's conquered. He's triumphed. He's overcome. He's beaten the bad guys. That's what he hears, okay? This is, this is what John hears. Look at the next line. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center before the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. I hear... Mighty, conquering, messianic, powerful, lion-rooted. That's what I hear. And then when I turn to look, he sees a lamb. And it's not just a, a lamb that's, you know, at his feet. and he's pet. It, It's a slain lamb. And not like, oh, a little cut here, he bleeds, and then, you know, but he's still walking around smiling. No, a lamb looking as if he had been slaughtered. When you slaughtered a lamb for a sacrifice or to eat in the ancient world, you split it, gut it, throw it on the altar. That's not a pretty picture. He hears conquering messianic king. He sees slaughtered lamb. What you see in Revelation and what you hear are not always the same. In fact, the cool thing about Revelation because it's apocalyptic, it turns everything on its head. Jesus may look for the, to the authorities of the day like a slain lamb. Nailed him to the cross just like any other common Roman criminal. Filleted his back open with the scourging. Buried him in a rock tomb. But he's actually the conquering messianic king. And through that suffering, that's how he overcame turned on its head. Symbolic irony to communicate a powerful point because what we find out is the lion is the lamb. And later in Revelation, when it talks about people fearing the wrath, it doesn't say of the lion. It says of the lamb. Revelation's full of imagery that just turns things on its head. Look at the... Uh, let's go back to chapter 7. Because we started on this 144,000, right? Well, keep in mind that seeing and hearing. John heard the number that was sealed. 144,000. 12,000 from every tribe in Israel. That's what he heard. Army. With marching orders. A census. Military. Look at what he sees. Verse 9. After this, I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Wait, you just spent three verses counting it. 
Now it's somebody, multitude that nobody can count. That's right. From every nation, tribe, people, and language. No, wait, it was just from the tribes of Israel when you said it. Every tribe, every nation, every people, every language, full color. That's the reality. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Those are two symbols of victory in the ancient world. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, meaning John, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? John, being very candid and honest, says, uh, you know, because he doesn't. Here's the key. And he said to me, these innumerable multitude from every tribe and language, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. And then there's a quote from Isaiah. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center before the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now in context, those Isaiah passages were God's promises to Israel. His people. In Revelation, those are the promises to the great multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation. What does this mean? John hears military Messiah, root of David, line of Judah, is conquered. Strong. He sees slain lamb, very weak. He hears 12,000 from every tribe of Israel, 144,000 God's army of Israel. He sees vast multitude of martyrs, people that have come out of this tribulation, people who have given their lives for Jesus. Just like the lion and the lamb blur, the 144,000 and the great multitude, same thing. The 144,000 of Revelation is an apocalyptic depiction of God's end-time mighty army that just happens to be made up of people from every tribe, every tongue, every language who are willing to give their lives for the Lamb. Turns it on its head. The message of Revelation is a message of hope. It's not a message of gloom and doom. It's not a message of war in the Middle East. It's not a message that you have to decode each part and try to say who's the beast and who's this prophet and when's this going to happen and let's bomb this country because then God's timetable can be filled. None of that. That is garbage. That is not from Scripture. Revelation is a message of hope, and it's a message of hope given to the body of Christ, particularly to the body of Christ as it suffers. It was written for suffering Christians to give them the spiritual insight so that they could say, okay, things are going to get really rough here, but we know what's true. We know that us laying down our lives for the gospel, if need be, is actually us being soldiers in God's army and conquering. And just as Jesus conquered by giving up his life, 
Those who are supposed to be like Jesus will conquer by giving theirs as well. In fact, the whole message of Revelation, the entire book, you could sum it up in one long sentence. The message of Revelation, maintain your faithful witness in the face of persecution and temptation, and you will overcome through Jesus. That's the message of Revelation. That's the message to the churches then. It's the message to the churches now. We may not experience the suffering right here on this corner of Moss and Triumph, but the body of Christ around the world is experiencing it. And since it's a body, if one part suffers, we all suffer. If my foot gets hurt, my whole body feels it. If Christians in southern Sudan are hurting, we in North America feel it. Because we're one body. We're one army. 12,000 from every tribe. Let's look at one more thing, because the, the question then is, okay, um, why the number then? Why 144,000? Well, if you're a math buff, you know that that is 12 times 12 times 1,000. I was an art major. I could never have calculated that. Can't do math. Um, in apocalyptic writing, numbers say a lot. That's been the whole series. Numbers speak. They have meaning. And all throughout apocalyptic writings, whether it's Daniel, whether it's Zechariah, whether it's Revelation, whether it's some of the other apocalypses around the time that were written, the number 12, is, it, it carries this idea of God's completeness or wholeness. There's a number that means perfection or fullness, which is seven, and you see that a lot too. But 12 is this, this sense of, of God's wholeness. 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus chose 12 disciples. 144,000, 12 times 12 times 1,000. The number 1,000 is the highest number that I know of in the Hebrew language. You, 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 you can count higher than 1,000, but you have to start like adding in the words. There's no word singular for higher numbers than 1,000, like a billion or something. We, they don't have that. And in the ancient world, 1,000, before the calculator, before the decimal system, before there was even a concept of zero for most people, it was hard to count to 1,000. A thousand was a way of saying a whole lot. Not infinite, it's countable, but it's a lot. Twelve times twelve times a thousand. Believers of the old covenant, the twelve tribes of Israel. Believers in the new covenant, the twelve disciples of Jesus. Times everywhere. All of God's people. Every tribe, every language, every nation, full color, in covenant with God. Whether before Jesus in old covenant, since Jesus in new covenant with him, all of God's people together, his army. And the question is, will we enlist? John hears mighty, conquering, powerful imagery. But when he looks, he sees slaughtered, weak, martyrs, beat down, defeated. And Revelation says, that's the reality. You live in a world where you feel like this, where it looks like this. This is who you are from heaven's perspective. That's a message of hope. And that's why Revelation was written. It is a book of hope. God's army wins in the end without even lifting a hand for battle. When Jesus returns with the army behind him, it says that the enemies of God are consumed by fire from heaven. We don't even have to fight. God's army wins. 
Jesus defeats all of the enemies. And not people, but the true enemies. The spiritual darkness, the evil. Death itself in Revelation gets beaten. The implications of that are mind-boggling. Death itself was beaten by Jesus. That means that those who are in Jesus have victory over death. If you die in Christ, you go to be with Christ. Death is not the enemy because one day when Jesus returns, the dead will be resurrected. Family members who've been parted by death in the Lord will be reunited. He's overcome. So the question of the 144,000, God's faithful people from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, everywhere, is are you among them? Will you enlist for his army? Let's pray. God, we thank you for, I thank you for your word, that the more we study, the more questions we have, but that you do give enough answers to provide all we need on the way. I pray that throughout this series, our, our notions of what we believe and, and what your word says, particularly the, the troubling passages or the controversial passages or the puzzling passages, I pray that those have become somewhat clearer. We may not know fully and we may miss some of the details, but the overall message, Lord, I pray that that would sink deep into our bones and that we would realize that Revelation is a book of hope. You're a God of hope. And even when things look to be at their worst, you give us your perspective. I got to pray as we go out of here that we'll be continually challenged by your word and that we'll continue to grow in our faith and in our fellowship with one another and in our relationship with you. We give you this entire time of worship, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.